Welcome to the first episode of Exceptionals, a show about extraordinary individuals doing exceptional things. I'm very pleased to have spent some time chatting to a man who has lived and breathed the fight game for well over half his life. I like to refer to him as boxing's kingmaker, as his business tentacles begin to spread right throughout the world from our Australian shores to the US, India, China and even Africa. Please enjoy my chat with MJA Entertainment's Mike Altamura. Easy work. You want to just check, is that level good? Level's good. All right, perfect. Mike Altamura, welcome. Altamura, welcome back. Well, thanks very much for coming in to my podcast now since we've uh, we created yours, episode 11, for those people that are wondering what happened to Mike on the mic. Correct, and it's a pleasure to be here, Sam. I'm not going to say it's great to be here or anything, but it is always a pleasure to be in your presence, and I look forward to the conversation ahead of us today. I appreciate you not saying thanks for having me. That is the... Maybe in like an hour or two, I'll be yes, saying that. Maybe if we if we get stuck for words, that means we have to go because uh, you know. Thanks for having me. It's just and we're just going to take this interview one question at a time. That, exactly right. Now we were talking about uh, an interview. We we enjoy the Joe Rogan podcast, of course. And they recently had Shannon, the Cannon Briggs, on board. Great and salesman. Wonderful salesman. I know. I obviously have knew of a little bit about Shannon the Cannon. But, you know, Mike, as a manager, is that a dream client for you? Yeah, I don't know about his attitude away from the ring all the time, but in terms of how he carries himself and his ability to sell his product and to sell fights, he's just about second to none. I mean, he's kept himself relevant in world boxing the last three or four years by pretty much fighting absolutely nobody and just working off of little YouTube clips, you know, obviously staged, but stalking Vladimir Klitschko, the then heavyweight champion all over the world, and has got his own unique way of consistently selling his product. So you said he's, he's when you say you don't, you don't like what he does away from the ring, is that, is that what you mean by... Well, on the business level, he's gone through about 30 managers. Okay. And a series of promoters and so on and so forth. So I don't know if that's a guy that, as a client with his mentality, I would be all that enthused to take on because it's bound to lead to some kind of disaster. But in terms of watching him from afar, he's great entertainment. So are you saying there's a lot of work to handle? Yeah, there's actually a documentary, uh, I think it was called like Naked Sport. It came out in 1993, 94. And it was based on his first management group looking after him, which was Mike Marley, who was a very well-known New York writer at the time. Uh, Shannon was his first boxing client. And you see all the trials and tribulations that Marley goes through trying to represent a very young Shannon Briggs. And apparently he's only gotten crazier since then. He's actually, he's happy to call himself crazy, very crazy. And that's kind of his gimmick, uh, speaking to Joe, telling Joe, listen, oh, Joe Rogan, listen, they're not fighting me because I am crazy. They're worried about me, which is all great for the hype and everything like that. So he came across as a genuine uh, promoter, nice guy, but obviously he's not going to mention the 30 different management companies that he's gone through. No, well, that's not a positive towards his cause. But 
the one thing you did touch on then is that the guy has got charisma in spades and he knows how to sell a fight. So that's why he keeps mentioning that he's only a small team. We're only working with a small team. It's my nephew who does the social media and maybe my trainer, and that's it. There's obviously a reason behind that. It's not because he doesn't need management. Maybe he can't get management. Is that correct? No, maybe there'd be a manager there somewhere. Someone's putting together this money for him to travel all over the world. And that's something that you're not seeing. There might be a silent partner in his career or something of that nature. So, so with silent partners, um, I remember when Azuma Nelson was at his peak fighting the Jeff Fennec, he would say that he was a slave to his um, backers, for instance. What, not necessarily Azuma's arrangement that he had, but with fighters, there's obviously what they call seed money that's important to a fighter who's there's some rich backers that see potential what is there a standard arrangement or does it vary how does it work it varies there's no one size fits all kind of methodology to that so i mean some fighters get tied in with say a manager or a promoter and pretty much the manager or promoter knows that they're never going to see anything really back from the investment but it becomes a, like a big ego kind of thing for them, I suppose, the fact that they're just associated with an athlete. Then there's other fighters who get stuck with a manager or promoter who ensure that they never break three of their shackles till they make their money back tenfold. So okay. there's all kinds of different arrangements. Uh, Shannon Briggs, for example, I'm not sure what his current deal is, but I know a lot of those fighters that come through that New York scene in the, the sort of the mid-90s, there used to be all these Wall Street hotshots that would come in and play the stocks and make their money on the stocks and want to play boxing. And I've never heard of any of them coming good on the investment. Every single one of them got hoodwinked by the fight game. So it's like betting on, um, like owning a racehorse. Is that right? If you want to tear your money up? Yeah, well, I'll just ask Nathan Tinkler. Okay. You know, what was it? 330 plus million dollars down the drain Thanks in his investments. Much. Uh, Shannon Briggs also, Briggs also mentions that um, uh, Shelly Finkel gave him $5,000 as a 19-year-old or something like that. Uh, how would that eventuate? And what, could you give us an idea of what may have been? As in he gave him $5,000 to sign? He just said he, got, he, he's, he just told us a story that uh, he got $5,000 from Shelly Finkel, I'm assuming. Okay, well, that's, that's pretty self-explanatory. Explanatory, and I've actually got a funny Shelly Finkel story. So, for those out there that don't know, Shelly Finkel is one of the preeminent boxing managers. So, the last 30 years, he made his name basically partnering up with Lou Duver and signing the cream of the US Olympic team in 1984, which included Pernell Whitaker, Meldrick Taylor, Evander Holyfield, Terrell Biggs, and a number of other guys on the team. And he's parlayed that into the future. Now, what Shelly used to do is he would go to the uh, the nationals, so the US nationals, the elite amateur tournaments, give a fighter, say, five, ten grand or whatever, put it in their pocket as kind of a sign of good faith that they were going to sign with him in the professional ranks. Occasionally, the person just took the five or ten grand, had a good time, and never called Shelly back. The funny story I've got is that there's a Irish Olympian out of the 2008 Beijing Olympics, Kenny Egan, now, Kenny Egan goes on and wins a silver medal in the 81-kilogram category. Shelley flies Kenny to the United States, you know, from Ireland, based on the fact that he's going to talk to him about management, look to sign him, and then move down the road together. 
Charlie pays all expenses paid for Kenny Egan. Kenny Egan fly, flies in, chats with Charlie for like an hour, then sits down and says to Charlie, oh, by the way, I'm also going to meet with Lou DeBala. I'm going to meet with this guy. I'm going to meet with that guy. So basically on Charlie's money, he went and had another half a dozen meetings in New York and then returned home and ended up signing with nobody. Okay, well, uh, is that the style that uh, MJA Entertainment, where are you on that scale of uh, luring fighters into your stable, Mike? Are you... One thing I can guarantee, I'll never fly them in to see me. I'll fly out to see them. Mm -hmm. But I won't do it the opposite way. So, you know, if the, I'll go to the kid's hometown where at least if I travel in, if there is anyone that's of importance to them, whether it's a family member, a trainer or whatever, I can meet the whole team. It's just an easier arrangement to handle it that way than to think, hey, I'll fly you in for a big fight weekend. And to me, it's more effective business as well. But... Yeah, you ain't going to be seeing me giving five or ten grand to an amateur boxer, that's for sure. Now, speaking of flying in, uh, recently, since we last spoke, and that's if anyone's interested in our last interview, Mike, on the Mike episode 11, the highest rated, uh, highest downloaded episode. Am I right there, Mike? That's correct. We've taken down the porn star, is that correct? Yeah, well and truly taken right. down the porn star. Thank you, okay. We've, we've got the top billing. That's uh, in hiatus at the moment or pod faded? What's, you're busy. A permanent hiatus just okay. due to life getting in the way, I suppose, and just focusing on growing the business. But you never know, I might be back in a couple of years. That's good. Well, bigger and better things, your frequent flyer miles must be going absolutely through the roof because when we last spoke, you've been to places like Japan, Las Vegas, you've been to uh, Hong Kong, Philippines, all over the country. Can you, how are your frequent fly points for starters? They're growing. The, the hard part is that I need to get a frequent flyer card that amalgamates everything. At the moment, I only have one with Virgin and I have one with Qantas. So when I fly, like last week, I flew on China Southern Star or whatever it is, Southern Airlines, that counted for nothing. So I need to start getting frequent fly cards for them amalgamate everything. So if anyone out there can help me, shoot me a message. Now you came you came from Japan via China to Australia. Correct. Now that's obvious to save it. It's a bit cost effective. Let's not call you a tight ass because we're trying to save money and this is good because your fighters and potential yeah, business partners know you don't like to waste money, correct? Well, it's like when the promoter flew me back to Melbourne from Los Angeles via Auckland. And it was like 25 and a half hours. And I'm thinking it was probably to save 40 bucks on a ticket. Did you tell them, did you send them a message and say, do you know who I am? No. Uh, that, that conversation always comes to mind because there's a guy who used to be on Big Brother in Australia named Hot Dogs, Simon <laughs> Deering. Yes. And a bouncer friend of mine refused him entry to a nightclub. And the guy started saying, do you know who I am? And the bouncer's like, I got no idea who you are. And the guy's like, I'm hot dogs. <laughs> the bouncer replies, I don't care if your name is sausage roll or party <laughs> pie. You ain't getting in, mate. Not with them shoes. So, yeah, that the old do you know who I am is such a pretentious thing to say to anybody. So, no, nah, I'm never going to steer myself with that kind of line. But... I will say this, I don't mind for me, they can fly me here, there, everywhere, whatever. But when it comes to flying my athletes in, I want them to go the most direct route possible. Of course. Now, from Japan via China back to Melbourne, and as, as soon as you landed in Melbourne, you had business to take care of. Where did you take off? Straight from Melbourne Airport to? Well, I, 
First I headed home, had a shower, dropped my luggage off, had to find my old passport and went straight to the Chinese embassy to lodge my visa because I'm out of the country again like four days later. And what's hap- why? why a Chinese visa? What's happening there? Well, I've got a number of matchmaking jobs upcoming in China. So basically the, the provinces that are working the shows will outsource the fights, look for a world-class boxing contest, and I've been effective in being able to deliver 50-50 style fights featuring international fighters in that market. So that's one step. But there's also a number of projects that I'm in the midst of finalizing in the Chinese market as well. So it's not true that you were heading off to China to negotiate the release of the Crown Casino employees that have been bailed up for the last couple of weeks for soliciting high rollers. Is that correct, Mike? That is correct. Yeah, you, you weren't you weren't over there. Okay. No, so. I'd probably make more money um, ascertaining that release, though. So China's obviously on the cards for MJA Entertainment. Your business tentacles are spreading far and wide. Yep. You've had uh, also some approaches from the subcontinent. The Indian market is calling. Yes, I have um, started working with iOS out of India, which is a massive opportunity. We've got a show coming up in New Delhi featuring former Olympic medalist and the most highly regarded Indian fighter by an absolute mile in Vijender Singh. He's a really charismatic kid. He's still developing. He's only 7-0, and but he's currently ranked top 15 in the world with the WBO, and he's the kind of guy that you can structure and build a company around. So iOS has brought me in essentially to start building the company beneath Vijender start developing the fighters I already have on their books and we're in the midst of just seeing which guys we can scout out of the Indian amateur ranks and start to provide the platform for them to translate over to the professional ranks. So slowly, slowly, I mean, it's the exciting part about India is that it's in its infancy in professional boxing. The frustrating part about India is that it's in its infancy in professional boxing. So Basically, I've come in as a consultant of sorts, but I'm also doubling as a matchmaker, and I'm needing to educate everybody from the ground up as to what the business of boxing and how the structure of boxing needs to be. So uh, from my perspective, it's an exciting opportunity, but just need to stay patient and be prepared to invest my time and develop them for the long road. So with this, um, India's, they're, they're, they're pinning their hopes on this Vijender Singh. Um, pretty much, yeah. So my question, as far as his amateur career is concerned, is that a pretty good amateur career in regards to um, Olympics, uh, Commonwealth Games? He's a, um, you know, Melbourne Commonwealth Games 2006 is a silver medalist. He was an Olympian in Beijing, bronze medal as well. And he's gone on to Delhi, a bronze medal there, Commonwealth Games, and also Glasgow, silver medal. So what sort of amateur career does he have? Uh, he has a phenomenal background, over 400 amateur fights and probably about 150 fights internationally. So he has a wealth of experience. There's a possibility that maybe he stayed in the amateurs just a little bit too long, which is why now he's on the fast track as a professional. So that's why we're looking ideally to target a world title in the next 12 to 18 months for him. And behind him, we've got then Akil Kumar, who was you know, a highly credentialed amateur as well, Commonwealth Games medalist. There's Jatenda Kumar. They're, none of them are spring chickens. You know, Kill's 35, Jatenda's 28. Uh, Vigenda's in his early 30s. So we've got to keep moving these guys as fast as possible. But 
The good thing is that because of that amateur grounding, they've got the relaxation and the poise to go through at least the first few entry levels of the pro ranks pretty fast. Once, say, Virginia gets to fighting fellow fighters in the top 10, then we're going to have to just pick our spots a little smarter and make sure that we get the right guy stylistically for him. So the actual approach from IOS, uh, how does that eventuate? Did you know somebody there? Did you see a, um, a, some potential for you to approach or did they come to you? How does that work? They were actually recommended to me. I've had a number of promoters in the Indian market and matchmakers reach out the last year or two, but most of them propose a show or propose a date. And then once you start putting together the content, suddenly the funds go amiss. Ah. IOS is the one company that actually has a legitimate background. They're a very solid sports management and also celebrity management company. They promoted a top of the range show in July with Vigenda and they've taken it to the next step by signing Jatenda Kuma and Akil Kuma. They've demonstrated that they're truly dedicated to building the product over there in their market. So once the approach came from them, because they were recommended to me, I was ready to start piecing something together because at least I know that the events are going to eventuate. That's always a concern. Like in this business, people don't see oftentimes the work you put into a situation where they're just simply the promoter bails or runs out of funds or whatever. So it's always a concern when you're breaking into a new market. But with these guys, they've got a pretty solid background. So the business plan, they've, they've put out a business plan that has given you confidence in going forward as opposed to what you've experienced in the past, obviously from mistakes that you've seen. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. And like I said, they're legitimate in what they do. They're a strong company. They're a solid company with true assets behind them. So I know that they're going to look to build towards a long haul. So they also, they're also in the entertainment business, you said. They're into making their uh, Bollywood movies as well. That yeah. Vigenda is actually starting. Yeah, he's been in a number of Bollywood films and also worked as a male model on okay. the runways of India. So is there a possibility that MJA Entertainment might try and score himself and a gig in one of these Bollywood films as the extra in the background or something like that? I don't know about extra. I think I want a speaking part. <laughs> but <laughs> I think for now I'll just stick to the boxing end of the company and look to develop that as far as it goes and then we'll worry about our uh, Bollywood accolades later down the line. It'll be good on your resume though, Bollywood star. It's not bad. Conversation starter. Oh, definitely. Uh, I'll be like, you know, I'm the only manager to star in a Bollywood hit. So we'll, well see. Well, you've gone from, a, a, I've gone from the background, you've gone from a speaker part and now all of a sudden you're the star. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, listen, that's good with India. Now we're going to Africa. Yep. You have a very young, very talented young man. Yeah, Isaac Dogba. Isaac Dogba, yes. He's actually out of Accra, Ghana. But if you hear him speak, he speaks like as if he's been um, educated, I suppose, by the British monarchy. He's got a very eloquent British voice. He grew up in Great Britain and he's actually based out of London you know, developed through the amateur ranks under that system. And it's been a real pleasure to work with him. He's only 21 years of age. He's a really sweet kid who has true fighting instincts, is a true warrior inside the ropes, but he's a very good lateral thinker. He's probably one of the smarter fighters I've worked with in recent years. And his father, Paul Dogbay, is 
an absolute lunatic, but he's our lunatic. And he's the right kind of lunatic. You know, he's a guy that is passionate about his son, passionate about the fight game, and he knows his boxing. He's a very good trainer. And, you know, so far, so good. We've got Dog Bay to a point now where he's 15 and 0. He's in the top 10 in the world with the WBO. And we have a fight coming up against Julian Aristule at 122 pounds, which should position him to go into the top five in the world with victory. So he's developing pretty well for a young kid. At 21 years old, obviously, he's very much influenced by his dad. And I, lunatic, endearingly, endear, a term of endearment, of course. If Paul is listening, it's endearing. Yes. Okay, he knows. What are parents like uh, managing? Do you come up? A, a lot of parents uh, of your fighters, do you find? They go one way or the other. They uh, they are either people that are really easy to work with and straightforward to work with, and you just have to understand their language and understand how tight they are with the athlete. And then you have your others that pretty much are never seen until it comes time for the athlete to step up at the absolute highest level. And when they do, that's when the monster is unleashed from their end of the spectrum, so to speak. You know, like you have a parent that you didn't even know their name for five years and all of a sudden you've positioned the fighter for a world title fight and they want to come in and start dictating the shots. So it can be tough. I mean, I hear the two, like people always say in combat sports, never deal with families, never deal with fathers. I don't necessarily believe that. But I can see sometimes that somebody's so close to, say, their son that they don't see everything from a neutral perspective. They only see it from their perspective of what they want for their child. And sometimes that's not realistic with what's actually out there on the market. So when a parent steps in, when you say you haven't seen them for five years and all of a sudden they're fighting for a world title, are they getting involved because there's a possibility that they think, if they know anything about the game, that you may have overmatched their child or... They smell the dollars. It's usually driven by the money. Yeah. And what sort they of... They start... All of a sudden, they get protective of of the money. They want to keep it all in-house for the family. So they obviously would have issues with your percentage or what your... Or your management's percentage. Is that the main issue? Not even there? just that. Just in general. You know, just from the trainers to everything. From working with if the fighter has a promoter, then all of a sudden they become interested in everything the promoter's doing. They start becoming interested in uh, the lack thereof of media publicity, no matter how much media publicity the athlete has. It's just on every aspect of the game. Sounds like they want what's best for their child, but they're blinded at times. Uh, by yeah, and they're not. Oftentimes, the people aren't educated in the reality of the fight business. So they only see what they want to see and they only see what they think the expectation should be and not what the reality is. So from Africa, we're going to Las Vegas. You came back from, you were in Vegas in July uh, yep. this year. Uh, one of your charges, uh, Leonardo Leni Zabavinia was there. Correct. He um, fought at the MGM, which is always very impressive on your uh, resume. And... This was an eliminator for an eliminator. Is that correct against China's Ikiang? Yeah, it was an eliminator for the number two spot in the International Boxing Federation at 140 pounds, or at least it was supposed to be. So at 140 pounds, okay, we're going to get back to that in regards to the 140 pound weight. 
how did this fight eventuate? Do you chase? Do they chase you? Does the organisation uh, try to match this up because it's good? What do they do? Well, a fight like that for the number two spot, you just got to see who the two top leading available contenders are. So if you have someone ranked inside the top 10, then you can fight another guy inside the top 10 for that number two spot. So I think at the time, Lenny was ranked number seven, and I think Yang, Yang was ranked like number six in the IBF. So this is more an availability and the, the actual organisation, the IBF at this time. Yeah. Uh, they are the ones that say, we want this to happen. They contact the managers, make it happen, boys. Is that pretty much how it works? Yeah, and it made it easier because both the kids, Lenny signed to top rank out of Las Vegas, and Ike Yang is represented by Seca in China, but they also got an affiliation with Top Rank too. So, are the having the organisation match these two guys up? Are the negotiations easier because they're both expected to have this fight? There's no one like walking away thinking, "No, nah, I'm not doing it. The purse is not enough," or whatever happens when fighters. Well, with fighters like that, with both of them, it makes sense to take that opportunity. Mm. Sometimes you have an athlete who doesn't need the ranking because they've got other things. They might have sponsors or television or whatever. But I know like from our situation with Lenny, it's about positioning him. So we were always going to take the fight and it was just simply my job to get him as much money as possible for the opportunity. Now, the interesting thing is uh, both fighters fight, train out of the same gym, the wildcard gym in Hollywood, Freddie Roach's gym. Yeah, it's an interesting situation. So how does that work? Do they rope the gym off? Do they put up the... Uh you know, the, the screens, well, what does it work? Fortunately, there's two floors to the uh, wildcard gym. A couple of years ago, Freddie Roach built a gym downstairs, which is a closed-off gym, and then upstairs, which is more like the general public gym. And Ike Yang, for the most part, train upstairs or out of Fortune Gym down the road, which is about 500 metres down the road on Sunset Boulevard. Lenny trained downstairs. So... For me, the fact that Freddie Roach placed Lenny downstairs, which is a more private gym, which is where Pacquiao and Cotto exclusively train, it told me that even within the wildcard ranks, he was perceived to be the house fighter. Okay, nice. Yeah. If they left him upstairs with the general public, I would have been a bit concerned. But, you know, it is what it is. It's a business at that level. And it was the right opportunity for both fighters. So whether you're gym mates, whatever, unless you're best of friends, hey, go to war. If he was put upstairs, and you being his manager, would you on a, would you step up to Freddie and say, Freddie, why is my boy upstairs? No, I'll just make sure Lenny knocks a guy out so we earn our spot downstairs. Okay, <laughs> so you're happy. You're not gonna. Do you know? No, who, I'm not a prima donna like that with the fighters. Do but. you know who I am to Freddie Roach? No, definitely not to okay. Freddie Roach. No. Now, when you told me you went to Vegas, this is how I imagined fight week, Mike. If you could. Uh, you arrive in Vegas. Yep. The MGM Grand send you a limo. Right. I don't, I don't know about that. Hang on, hang on. Straight from the airport to the hotel. They hand you check in to that express check in, of course. Yep. They hand you the keys to your penthouse suite. Then you kick back for three or four days by the pool until fight night. Is that how easy it is for a manager when you get to that level? Well, you forgot that I ran into Willis from different strokes okay. as well. But other than that, yeah. <laughs> that's it so i've got it, i've hit it you got it down pat all right because you did mention it was supposed to be at 140 pound level. correct right yeah so tell us the situation there what happened okay so 
I get into Vegas. Uh, for once, there actually was somebody at the airport to get me to the hotel. Oh, very nice. So that was refreshing. So pretty much I arrive and straight away Brad Goodman, who's the lead matchmaker at Top Rank, calls me and says, hey, we've got to talk about the weight. I said, okay, what do we got to talk about? And I had heard whispers out of the wild card that Yang was heavy. I actually, people don't know this, but I actually matched a lot of Yang's early fights in China. And he used to fight at like, you know, 130 pounds up to 135 so for me to hear that he was struggling to make 140 was incredulous. But the, the fact is that, you know, I'd asked other guys like Sean Gibbons who had worked with him, who's a dear friend of mine, and they had all said he had struggled to make weight previously. Everyone was telling me he was heavy. So when I got there, Brad says to me, you know, look, I don't think this guy's going to make weight. I get the reports out of the top-ranked gym in Vegas that he's only training half-hearted. And obviously... My kid is, you know, pretty much set up his whole life for 10 weeks to prepare for that contest. So we're never going to pull out. But I'm also mindful of the fact that he's gone and made all the sacrifices to keep his weight under control and to be a professional. So it's about being able to find a balance of how to negotiate this and how to navigate it to the finish line so that all parties get the desired result. So the next step from there is I just said to him, look, just get him as close to the weight as possible. You know, let me know where he's going to be at. The next day I hear nothing. So this is like day two there, like two days out from the, from the fight. And I'm thinking, you know what, maybe Yang is going to just starve himself down, make the weight, and we'll have a final eliminator. And it gets to the next day, the morning of the weigh-in, and there's no whispers from Top Rank about the weight. I'm messaging them, everything. And, you know, I work closely with these guys for the best part of a decade. And then Brad's saying to me, look, I don't think he's going to make the weight. But there was nothing official about, you know, Yang not making weight. Meantime, the word spread back to Lenny. So I've had to, this is actually the day before the weigh-in, I should say. So I've got to just keep Lenny cool, have a good chat with him, let him know where it's going to be at you know, and just keep him focused. We still know that pretty much, you know, for Lenny's perspective, he's prepared to make 140 pounds. So I go to the rules meeting and the Las Vegas commission is working through the card and they say, Ike Yang versus Lenny Zappavinia, uh, 10 rounds. Now knowing all IBF eliminators are 12 rounds. 10 rounds, 143 pounds. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, no one's talked to me about this. So straight away, I went over to Brad Jacobs, who is, um, you know, one of the vice presidents at Top Rank, and just said to Brad, I'm like, hey, man, we've got to talk about this. We've got to work this out. He goes, okay, okay, we'll see what we can do. So like I said here, I already know Lenny's fighting. So I called Lenny up. And he was sitting at about 144 pounds because usually cuts kind of hard the last few pounds. So he was okay. He could just balance his weight for a day, you know, not have to do any kind of crazy cutting and he'll come in at 143 the next day. And then I said to Lenny, I go, leave it with me and I'm going to go negotiate. I think if I was a rookie manager, the company would have been able to just get away with just changing the fight to a 10, paying him the same amount of money. But I was going to allow that to fly because I knew that Yang already, they had all Chinese television there, everything. 
So the fight was of significant value to him. So I went and met with Top Rank and I just thought, okay, you know, this is, it's not the kind of deal where I can go for the kill because I still, I've got other athletes with these guys. Lenny's future is going to be based with them. So I've got to go in and find a happy medium with negotiations. So part of the negotiation was getting Lenny another $5,000 okay. added to his purse. So at least there's some form of punishment for Yang not making weight. Because what I expressed to the top rank staff was that, you know, the belt agreement's 140 pounds. Mm. I need to agree, Lenny needs to agree that we don't fight at 140. Because the way it's filed with the commission, if Yang comes in over 140, he's going to be facing fines and suspensions from the commission that are going to be a hell of a lot more than five grand. Okay. So that was how we were able to structure that. Now, one of the casualties of all those talks is that when a fight in Vegas is a non-title contest and it's above 140 pounds, both camps have to agree to eight-ounce gloves. Oh. Yang wouldn't agree to eight-ounce gloves. He wanted tens. So as it turned out, the tens just held him on his feet a little longer because Lenny knocked him out in the sixth round. But, you know, that was a little frustrating too. But it was like, okay, you want your weight? You want your gloves? Whatever. We walk out first. You come out second, Whatever. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. It matters whose hand gets raised. And Lenny got his hand raised because at the end of the day, he carried himself like a professional going into the fight and the other guy didn't. So that's obviously going to make a difference when you say you're negotiating. Are you, are you negotiating with the IBF in regards to this fine or you're negotiating with top rank? With top rank. With top rank. Now, okay. with the IBF where I had to go to work was basically because the eliminator fell over, I didn't want them to perceive it that, Lenny had any bearing on the fact that mm. it fell over and I didn't want to see him punished in the rankings. Mm -hmm. So fortunately with the IBF now, they were able to put him in a high enough position where he's fighting for the final number one spot. So it's absolute final world title eliminator with Sergei Lipinitz of Russia. So fortunately we're able to hold things together with the IBF as well. So with the IBF, um, regardless the fight, has been set at 140. Yeah. You don't make that weight. The IBF, it sounds like they just wash their hands of you and say, gents, you're not fighting at the weight. The eliminator's out the window. The eliminator's absolutely out yeah. the window. So that's it. We lobbied for the IBF to perceive the result like as I was an eliminator. And you said you were trying to keep Lenny cool. Were you? Are you understating there? what the work involved in just trying to because you don't oh, you just keep them relaxed you you got to know the temperament of the fighters you have and i think when someone's cutting weight and someone's focusing and you know just trying to get in the right headspace you got to shield them a little bit from all these discussions yeah you know, you're hired there for a purpose the fighter puts you in that position because they trust you to handle these matters on their behalf and so you have to take the resp responsibility that comes with that and be fueled by doing the right thing by the athlete. But Lenny, because of that, was able to stay pretty calm. You know, he stayed in a very good headspace. So when you're trying to manage fighters uh, and they're cutting weight, especially towards the end, I'm assuming that's the hardest. Yeah. Yeah. So are a lot of them hangry, Mike? You know how it is when you go to a restaurant, you're starving. Do you get your fighters There's like plenty this? of them that get hangry. Hangry. I'm talking with the H at the front. Are they hungry and angry at the same time? Absolutely. Because they 
Len- Lenny just goes quiet. If he's cut into 140, fight, like on weigh-in day, he's just, he's a little quiet. So you just, you know, you, you don't poke the lion with a stick, so to speak. <laughs> so with your, um, you're getting this intel coming in from everywhere. Yeah. These, from what I understand, are your spies. Oh, in terms of the guy not making weight? Just information that you get from opposition camps. Yep. Yeah, so... Do you have plants? Do you have people you know? Are you? I have people I trust. Yes. Yeah. There's you know there's always someone calling you with some outrageous story of what's happening. And, you know, and I've I've heard the craziest things come out of camps. You know, I had someone once telling me and this is a funny one. They're telling me that the other fighter that we were against was way out of shape and overweight and was badly addicted to cocaine and was off the rails and so on and so forth. This is going back years ago. And then we come into the weigh-in and the guy was shredded as anything and ended up flattening my guy in like five rounds. So it's like you can't always trust the intel that comes back to you. So what I'm understanding, yeah, exactly, this guy here, I'm assuming you didn't take any more of his um, information uh, down, uh, down the track. No, I was pretty dubious to say the least. Now, um, the manager's role obviously underrated. Yeah, it depends. Time. Depends and on what your perspective is. But unless, yeah. uh, but unless you know you are in the game, and you, I mean the fighters would know what you guys would do most yeah. of the time. Their, I don't their think team would go, but the guy that they may see you stepping up, uh, fight time uh, in the ring. The, the amount of work that's gone involved, uh, the reason I'm directing it there is because you have been awarded a management, an award from the WBO, the Asia Pacific, uh, the Asia Pacific Manager Award. Yeah. You're the current holder, current champ, yeah? Reigning. Do you, how does there something like that eventuate? How did, does someone nominate you? Do you have to apply? How's it go? Well, in that case, the officials at the WBO acknowledged the amount of turnover I've had with the athletes in this region, well, specific the Asia-Pacific region, and the success that they've been able to have over a 12-month period. So, you know, it, it doesn't obviously hurt to have a great rapport with the people that run the sanctioning bodies, and I've always aspired to have a good working relationship with them so that, you know, I can steer my fighters through the world rankings and, in the meantime, just give them the best opportunities to keep advancing their careers. But to have any kind of award or, ac- or accolade like that, you know, it's very, it's very humbling. It's something that, you know, I haven't always accepted the best in the past because I've always kind of tried to play down any of my achievements. But it's also something that I'm proud of to have had the opportunity to win because it means that I am being recognised for the hard work and toil over all these years. So how did you find out you won it? Is it an email? Is it a post? Well, Is that was a, a funny situation. They, uh, Danny Lee and Leon Panancio run the Asia Pacific. And Danny calls me and says, are you coming to WBO convention this week, this year? It's in Orlando, Florida. I was like, nah, man. I'm like, are you guys flying me there? He goes, no, no, no. He goes, you have, to, you have to bring yourself there. I said, well, I'm busy with other stuff, so I don't think I'll be traveling. Then he calls me like a week later. Are you coming to convention? I'm like I told you, I can't make it this year. And then about three or four days before the convention, he's like, look, I really think you should come over to a convention. So 
at that point, something clicked in my head. I'm like, wait a second, I'm going to win an award. I still no-showed it. I think I was like well, the only person not to be there to collect their award. So, <laughs> um, I don't know what I would have said, even if I did, even if I was there and won it. So it was good to win it in absentia, so to speak. <laughs> but yeah, I kind of had the heads up, even if I didn't recognize it for about a month. So is it true that you have inquired about having the award made like a championship belt that you could drape over your shoulder pro wrestling style? That would be nice. For negotiations with other managers. Would you, is that true? Either that or like a championship ring, like the NBA. Yes. One or the other, but yeah, that would, that would be better. And then I can wear it in like some obscure Asian countries like Laos or Cambodia and be like, don't you know who I am? I'm the top manager. <laughs> Come yeah. find me. But do you, I've seen it. I've seen a photo. It's an actual plaque style with a beautiful glove and the WBO logo. That's something that you you don't plonk it on the table for negotiations or anything like that. You don't. You never. You've never brought it along. No, no, no. It's um, firstly it's heavy. Yeah. So the second thing is the award ain't gonna negotiate a deal for me. If anything, it'll just turn out like one of them old WWE style arguments and the other person will probably get the award and shatter it over my head. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't be bringing it to negotiations with me. All right. So where's it hanging at the moment? Last one on this award. It's where's funny. It well, it's funny you actually mentioned it being placed on the desk because it's just sitting on my desk at the moment. Nice. Uh, I've got to actually work somewhere to hang it up, but I will in due time. How long did it take to actually get? Did it? It took me 11 months to collect it. 11 months. So they, they were, were you guys staring each other down? Uh, they were hoping you'd come to pick it up in Florida and they waited 11 months and they said, no, nah, uh, Mike's not coming to Orlando. I was actually Florida. sitting in Brisbane for 11 months. In Brisbane? Yeah. So it travelled from the award itself almost has done more travel than me. It went with Danny from Florida to China to Thailand to Brisbane then he brought it to Melbourne to drop off to me and forgot to give it to me. Okay. Then it went back from Melbourne to Brisbane and then it sat in Brisbane until I just said eventually, you know what, I really think this award needs to come home. So with an award like this, it's always nice, but it's always nice to hear from your, the people in your stable, the fighters, the families in your stable. What sort of things do you hear that you're, it makes you happy that, with what you're doing? Do you, do you get some positive feedback, some affirmations from these people just to keep you up definitely i think you know like i've been able to retain guys that i work with for a long time i've got a lot of long-term working relationships with athletes and trainers so obviously i've been able to earn their trust over that time and demonstrate to them that my skills can hold up at a world-class level uh, some of the great things i hear is just people you know have told me that you know they they wouldn't be where they are now if it wasn't for my guidance and my assistance and you know that if I can help put these guys on a better path in life whether it's even just in a forget boxing it's just like teaching them that there's a better way you know a better headspace to be in that's always something that I take a lot of pride in and you know I enjoy the opportunity to work with so many talented athletes and I think that makes a difference too when you're passionate about what you do and when you when you feel like as though, you know, each day to work in this industry is something that revives you and makes you feel excited to be part of, it doesn't feel like a job to me. 
you know, to be able to, like, some days I just wake up and I just think, man, like, I'm working with all these world-class fighters. And that's the kind of thing I aspired to do when I was a child. So to actually have that opportunity and to have them place their faith in my hands, it's very, very humbling, man. So as a child aspiring to doing now what you are doing, did you ever imagine yourself doing business deals in toilets, Mike? Now, I don't know about toilets. So there's I, two instances that we've mentioned in the past, right? One yep. not far from here in New Zealand and another one in Russia. Yep. Would you would you please elaborate on yeah. a manager's role? In oh, the one in the one in New Zealand is a beauty. So I was 23 years of age, and this gentleman who was looking after Muhammad Azawi at the time, who was uh, Algerian cruiserweight based out of New Zealand, I had no idea who he was. He just he just looked like some dude in a suit to me, and so he's come to me to pay the purse, and. I just said to him, I'm like, follow me. I remember everyone always saying, count the money in front of them. You know, make sure that they don't shortchange you anything. So I get him by the shirt, drag him into a toilet cubicle, count the money in front of him. It was all good. I release him, work out what the trainer needed to be paid, everything, you know, so figure out what our purse breakdowns are. Anyways, I walk out of there and John Glozier, who's a friend of mine in New Zealand, says to me, he goes, do you know who you just dragged into a cubicle with you? I'm like, I don't know. And I go, who is he? I go, all I know is he had our money. He's like, that's Bruce Plested. He's the owner of Main Freight. So it's like company worth like 300 million plus. And I've just dragged the poor guy into a toilet cubicle to count the money in front of me. So yeah, it was kind of semi-embarrassing, but that is what it is. And well Welcome to MJ Entertainment. This is how we do business. You got to get the money at the end of the day for your boys, correct? Correct. Toilet, and, no toilet. And the other thing is too, like I was saying, uh, when you're at a venue, there you don't feel comfortable. If you're getting paid in cash, you don't feel comfortable counting the cash just openly in the dressing room. So where's the private place you can find in a venue? It's usually in a bathroom. That's probably the reason why so much business is conducted in the bathroom. So the Russian experience was similar to that? Uh, similar, but yeah, that was pretty much, that was more money to count though. Okay. So it took about five times longer, but the person was aware of the fact that we had to go in there and count. It wasn't just me grabbing the random person who paid me and being like, hey, come here. <laughs> that was okay. So that's the way they do business as well in Russia. Uh, that's fine. Let's go to the toilet where it's cubicle, private. Let's go count it in a private place. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So these people that you know, that you don't know in, in, in this business, you've obviously also come across other people that uh, have gotten in, dabbled into the fight game. One in particular is Curtis Jackson the third, aka Fitty. Fitty Cent. Now, tell us a little bit more about this arrangement or involvement with Fitty Cent. That was an interesting uh, experience to say the least. I remember getting a call at like twelve thirty at night and I'm like, Hello? And the person's like, Hi, this is Fitty. I'm like, who? Like, this is Fitty. I'm like, okay. He's like, I want to talk to you about this kid, Billy Dibbs. And I'm like, you mean Billy the Kid Dib? So he had this habit of calling him Billy Dibbs. And then he's like, he goes on and explains that he's going to have his crew in touch and they're looking to fly him in because they're looking to launch their company and sign a few existing world champions. So anyways, I hang up the call. I thought it was a prank call. I was 
I was dead set certain. The only thing is, like, at the time that he was calling, I figured it's probably, you know, morning in New York. So that was the thing that I thought, maybe, but I, I was certain it was a prank call. And then the next day, this guy Henry Oglesby gets in touch and he's like, oh, yeah, we're working on your travel. We're going to be bringing you guys in this week. <laughs> so I was like, wow, this is legitimately happening. So anyways, I went over with Billy, Billy the Kid Dib, who at the time was the IBF featherweight world champion, and his brother, and we went over to negotiate with 50 Cent in Las Vegas. So this was in 2012? Yeah, July yes. 2012. So it was just before I headed over to the London Olympics. So um, 50 Cent, uh, was, he was licensed as a boxing promoter when he formed his new company. And that new company was called The Money Team. Yeah, initially it was yes. TMT. Yeah. TMT, The Money Team. So he was initially licensed in New York, from what I understand. And then he was uh, looking for that um, uh, in the process of being licensed in Nevada. To yeah, do where all correct. The big fights are made. So he's signing up all these Olympians and gold medalists and everything like that. And then he then signed up or he joined – was he joined forces with Floyd Mayweather? Uh, it or? was him and Floyd. Yes. And so. the idea from his perspective was that Floyd was going to break away from Leonard Allaby yep. and also from Al Heyman mm -hmm. at the time. So they were going to form this new conglomerate. Now, remember, Floyd was locked up at this time. So – 50 is talking to Floyd in prison. Floyd had a cell phone when he was in prison. Mm. He's talking to him, running all these deals past him. And we've seen that going down in front of us. So it looked like they were on the level in terms of what they were building together. Somewhere along the lines, they had a fallout. And 50 got stuck with all these fighters that he had way overpaid, including Billy Dibb, who we hoodwinked 50 for a signing bonus that he should have never paid. And he ended up being stuck with all these contracts, pretty much, it, with fighters that he didn't have the capability to move along the way that he had promised them. I think together with Floyd, he would have been able to do it. Was he leaning on Floyd for his uh, knowledge of the business? Yeah, and he needed Floyd's appeal. Yep. All the guys that he went out and signed, like someone like Billy Dibb, um, he had signed Doral, Andre Doral, Celestino Caballero. All these guys could have maybe excelled if you're able to place them on one of Floyd's undercards. But the problem is when you're just completely exposed, promising them crazy high minimums, which of course you can't fulfill because none of them were real big draw cards according to TV networks, you're in a very, very vulnerable position. And actually the other one he'd signed was Uriokas Gamboa, paying him just a ridiculous fees. And, and does, uh, they parted ways. Even Zab Judah expressed an interest to join the company at the Zab time. Zab was another one, yeah. Zab, Zab was in there. Now, when they parted ways later that year, so uh, the relationship uh, lasted, what, six, seven months? Not even that bad, right? Five months from when you, Billy was contacted in July and uh, the company Mayweather and um, 50 Cent um, parted. It, it was done within two months. I'd two say. months, okay. Yeah, and it might have come public six months later, but it was done within a couple of months. So he then started his own company, 50 Cent. 50 cent. Is it 50 Cent or 50 Cent? It's because 50 Cent, but you call him 50. All right. So, okay. Because <laughs> when he's listening in, we don't want to upset him. We're getting his name right. So he started up his own company, SMS Promotion, from yep. what I understand. How did that go? Is that the, the issues that he had? Yeah. A SMS was an absolute failure on all levels. So did he then fold and say, how did, does he honor contracts? Does he claim bankruptcy? How does he get away? How does he get out of? Uh... I don't think he honored every contract. I know from Billy Dibb's end, 
and you know what Billy's publicly expressed because I only was looking after Billy for that initial deal. Once once I'd gone over there and brokered that deal for him, I had a fallout with Billy and his brother. So I went I went my separate way. I know with Billy that he had to sign off like in an extra to the agreement, basically agreeing to fight for less money than what he was contracted for. So speaking of fights falling uh, fights falling down or you know fights that you've made falling down there's one in particular that I think is pretty relevant now seeing that Andre Ward has um, unified the light heavyweight championship recently by beating Sergey Kovalev yep you had one of your crew is a now they're in your stable Mike are they happy to be called, referred to as in your stable because I don't want to upset any of your boys are they stallions are they prancing stallions is that no, they're, they're definitely thoroughbreds they're thoroughbreds um, yeah. Endear another endearing term. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. I don't think that's a negative at all. I'm five and a half feet on a very I ain't calling him Mr. Red. So Well, okay, <laughs> I was gonna say I'm only five and a half feet on a very good day and I don't want some of your boys, your men, your even your girls, uh, that I refer to as your in your stable to be upset with me. So can we call them endearingly in the in your stable, yes? Correct. So one of your stable guys you actually set up a fight with Andre Ward. Can you give us more information? Yeah, so that's Rowan No Mercy Murdoch, who at the time was ranked top 10 in the world as a super middleweight. And Ward was looking to have his comeback fight coming off of, well, he'd had the one fight with Paul Smith, but he was coming off of quite an absence. So this was last November. And the fight was negotiated and purses were worked out. And, you know, it was the opportunity of a lifetime for Rowan in terms of, the money on the table was phenomenal. The Australian dollar at the time was at like 74 cents and the money was at 300,000 US. Okay. So that's like just a tad over 400,000, which is pretty crazy. You know, like you have guys that win world titles and defend them two or three times in that weight class and they don't get anywhere near that. So it's an opportunity that you have to jump at, you know, because even if you just put on a valiant performance against Ward, you'll be rewarded with at least another showcase on American television. So, you know, we took the opportunity there. We knew it was going to be a tough fight. But before the fight got to the finish line, it was shot down by Bob Bennett in Nevada, who he's one of the head commissioners. And he didn't just turn down Rowan, he had turned down also Alexander Brand. At the time, he had turned down quite a few other top-ranked uh, top contenders because he felt like Andre Ward was at another sphere compared to all the guys are looking to put him in with. So is it, it sounds like he's has the final decision on who. Yeah. Well, he's who. the head commissioner there. Right. Yeah. So his knowledge is obviously great because you do find some, um, you know, some commissions that think they know a lot more than the experts, for instance. So you obviously didn't agree with that. You thought it would have been a 50, 50 to challenge your guy. Well, it's look, he's always going to be an underdog. You know, anyone fighting Andre Ward is an underdog and that's what you have to understand. But Bennett was just flexing his power, so to speak, and maybe that's how he legitimately thinks. Maybe that's, you know, what drives him or whatever. But I know a lot of the matchmakers who are working the scene in the US are kind of dissatisfied with how he handles things because, you know, like he's so tough with getting opponents approved that sometimes it cause them to have to spend the near fortune just to bring in an opponent for a four-round fight. So I guess, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to adapt to what's in front of you. And 
if you're going to fight in Nevada, you've got to adapt to what the commissioner is. You so, can't complain about it, so to speak. Mm. Now, with if we can go to your self-promotion of fighters, um, I've, I've, you know, you have a pro wrestling background. You're a fan. You love it. And love the old school, not the current product, but yeah. But you, you remember the, the old days, how the guys used to sell. Yep. And these days, there seems to be a lack of it. In, in a lot, apart from Conor McGregor, I mean, Ronda Rousey doesn't have to do much, but, you know, she's very good. But apart from Conor McGregor, the UFC really don't have that much. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, in particular, when Manny Pacquiao beat one of your boys, Jesse Vargas, to win the WBO title, Max Kellerman was in the ring, the HBO commentator. Yeah. He put the mic in front of uh, Pacquiao and he goes, what's next? Now, Mayweather was in the crowd. Wouldn't the natural thing be to call out uh, Mayweather and let's start the promotion for the next one? Is that a natural thing? I don't know if that's in Manny's temperament, though. It never has been. Okay. So maybe he just did what comes naturally to him. But, yeah, if you're thinking from a promotional end, you want to be selling the next event. So is that what you – have you advised that? Do you get into your, your fighter's ears to say um, – It depends. You know, so you've got to stick with the temperament of the guys you represent as well. I've never been real high on trash talking unless that's what comes naturally to the guy you're working with. Well, I'm thinking not necessarily trash talk. It's more let's talk about the next fight. I want to let's get a name out there. And yeah. Your fighter could possibly corner the promoter with the crowd going crazy after a great win the fighter could call out the guy who's in the crowd and the promoter has no other choice but to put that fight on, which is a guaranteed less yeah. guaranteed for you. I mean, you can work it that way. It just depends on, you know, essentially what level of deal you're speaking of. But yeah, if you've got, I look at it like this. If you've got a fighter that can call somebody out and it can benefit them, then go ahead and do it. If you, if you, by calling somebody out, all you do is affect negotiations for yourself, say if you're the lead promoter, then you don't do it. Mm. It's all about what you have to gain out of getting out there and speaking up and putting that challenge out there. So it's, it's like a Shannon Briggs style going back to Shannon Briggs. Yeah, well, Shannon Briggs going all over the world calling out Klitschko, positive yeah. for him, keeps him in the headlines. Klitschko going out and calling out Shannon Briggs only drives up Briggs's price. Right, okay. you got to know what side of the coin you're sitting on. So maybe, maybe for Pacquiao, maybe Pacquiao thought, if I come out and challenge Mayweather, then I give him all of the upper hand in the negotiations. So with Shannon Briggs, the social media side of things has really skyrocketed his profile. Technology today, how has it helped with the, that's the, help, the, it's the management, for instance? It's a different audience. Mm. You know, in this day and age, you know, people expose to so much more of who the sporting stars are. And that's not always a positive. They see every little thing, you know, like 20 years ago, if you wanted to know what your sporting star had for breakfast, you'd be wowed by it. It's a feature story in a newspaper. Now it's Instagram post every second day. You know, so the accessibility is there, but it's about knowing the athletes knowing how to make that work for them. For someone like Shannon Briggs, a 20-second soundbite can carry over for weeks on end from him. So it's about knowing how to position yourself and how to market yourself. Now, technology-wise, other aspects of boxing, 
it's changed a hell of a lot too. Just even like with records, I remember, you know, even through to like when I first started in management, like 2000, 2001, BoxRec wasn't up to date with records. There was a few other websites, but they weren't really up to date. I used to get the official Fight Facts book, which is like the yellow pages of boxing records. It's like 1300 pages. And I'd be writing in results in gray lead to each of the fighters so that I could make sure I could keep following their career. And then if they had fought a certain opponent that year, I would I would write next to the opponent's name what page they actually listed on so I could go up and look their record. Nowadays, it's all there on BoxRec. You just click, click, click. You've got everything ahead of you. Same with contacting people. You know, back in the day, you you might have one agent you deal with in a certain part of the world and they would bring you everything. Now you can go and get fighters direct, managers direct, trainers, promoters, whatever. It's all there on social media. So the landscape of the of the game has changed a lot. Same with footage. Everyone's got something on YouTube now. You know, it used to be like years ago, if you're fighting an international opponent, to be able to get that VHS tape in with four or five fights of theirs was like a goldmine. So the business has changed a lot in that respect too, for the better. So you find... Um in regards to the recruitment of fighters for your organization, the social media, as well as uh, putting together a show reel, has assisted them. It also has assisted you. The accessibility is phenomenal in this day and age. So the, what is the balance between fighters chasing you to manage because they hear you've got fighters in Africa, they hear you're doing big things in China, there's, uh, in, in India. Are they chasing you now more than you're chasing them? Are they, does it have to be a special fighter now to get Mike Altamira out of bed in the morning? Well, there's a line I've utilised elsewhere, but I haven't said it in your presence. And, Go for it. You know, if, um, if you aspire to be with a beautiful woman, you have to go out and find her. Okay. You have to wine her, you have to dine her, you have to convince her that you're worthy of her. And the same works with elite professional athletes. The elite ones, the great ones, if you're looking at the Usain Bolt of boxing, if you're looking at the Michael Jordans, you've got to go out and find them. They ain't going to come to you. You can't just sit back and expect them to walk on your doorstep. So in that respect, you've got to always be proactive in your recruitment, especially with the elite amateurs. I'm fortunate these days that a lot of the fighters that are, say, talented fighters but looking for opportunities opportunities, or just come out of contract, they're getting in either in communication with me directly or somebody's recommending them to me. So the workload of recruitment isn't as substantial as what it used to be, but I'm still mindful of the fact that I can never stop recruiting on my own merit too. So if you could just give us that about whining and dining one more time. I'm, I've got the pen ready. You, If you want a great fighter... You have to be prepared to whine and dine them, to follow them over the planet and to convince them that you're worthy of them. With those words, Mike, i got nothing else. We're going to leave it right there so that people know that if you are, if Mike is chasing you around the planet, then you're being, you're worthy of being whined and dined. You're being wooed. <laughs> by Mr. Altamura. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Mike, thank you. In the words of the great Howard Lee, keep punching. Keep punching, Sammy. Thank you very much. You can say thanks for having me. That's good. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my chat with the Kingmaker, MJA Entertainment, Mike Altamura. Don't forget to subscribe so you can automatically be sent the next episode. Bye for now.